Hebrews, Hebrews chapter uh, 2, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews is a great book in the Bible. And the theme of Hebrews is this. I hope you'll get this. The theme is this. Jesus is better than everyone, and he's better than everything. Okay? Now, our culture would say, we live in a pluralistic society, it would say, oh, no, no, you can't say that your way is better. I mean, you know, we even hear people say this. My truth might be different than your truth. No, no, truth is truth, right, okay? And so uh, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the book of Hebrews is about a group of believers that began questioning, man, did we really do the right thing trusting Christ? Maybe we should go back to our old ritualistic uh, system of worship. Uh, But the author of Hebrews, whether you believe it was Paul or someone else, he is saying to them that Jesus is better than everyone and he is better than everything. In chapter 1, he begins talking about how Jesus is better than angels. But in chapter 2, as we begin, he is going to kind of take a rabbit trail. Now, have you ever heard a preacher get on a rabbit trail? Yeah, okay. Now, if you are a preacher, uh, some of you are like really waving at me, so Brother Farinella must be a rabbit hunter, all right? So, Pastor Elmer Fudd over here, uh, uh, chasing rabbits. But honestly, if you're a preacher... Chasing rabbits sometimes is fun, and sometimes it's necessary. And the author here in these little, it's it's almost like a parenthetical statement, and and it's almost, there are five major admonitions in the book of Hebrews, and this is the first of them. And I think you'll recognize some of the scripture, but it certainly, certainly has an appropriate appropriate message for us tonight. So would you stand with me, please, and we're going to read the first four verses together. Hebrews chapter 2. And he starts off by saying, therefore. Now, if you've been around church a while, you've heard the Bible study principle, the hermeneutical principle. When you see the word, therefore, stop and see what it's there for. Okay, I know it's kind of cheesy, but it does help us remember that, right? And so he's connecting it to what he's just said. What has he just said? Jesus is better than everyone. He's better than everything. He's Jesus is better than an angel. He's not just an angel that came to earth. He's the Son of God that came to earth. And that's better than an angel, okay? And so that's what he said. So therefore, since the Son of God came and he's better than an angel, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. Why? Lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, And every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, with diverse miracles, and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Tonight I want to preach to you about slip sliding away. Did you see there? He says, lest they slip. This is a revival meeting. This morning we talked about being saved. You came back tonight. We're going to assume that most of you, if not all of you, are saved. But we don't want to slip away. We don't want to backslide. And so I want to talk to you about that a little tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray you fill me with thy spirit and help me tonight. Help me to clearly communicate the truths of your word. I thank you for allowing me to preach in this place at this time. And I pray that again, the hearts of the people will be prepared I pray you fill me with thy spirit so that I am effective, a tool in your hand to accomplish your work in the lives of your people. But I also pray that this congregation is filled with the spirit as well, so that they would have ears to hear what the spirit would say to them. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
Robert Robinson wrote the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Ironically enough, uh, the pianist played that tonight in the melody of songs that she played for the, uh, the offertory, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Robert Robinson was saved under the preaching ministry of George Whitfield. Now, I know some people want to talk about George Whitfield and his methods and things like that, but that's really God did use him to lead a lot of people to Christ, and Robert Robinson was one of them. And after he got saved, he felt a call in his life to preach, and he began to pastor, and he, he really, by all uh, standards, had a successful time in the pastorate. But after a while, he just kind of got worn out, and, and that, that can happen. You know, I, I always suggest that pastoring is not for wimps. It's really not. Um, honestly, the pastorate is the only job I know where people who don't like you are mad at you because you didn't come visit them. That's just my opinion there, but it's, it's not for wimps. It's kind of a tough thing. And he got worn out and he began to drift away from the Lord. And so in an attempt to find some peace, he began to just travel. He just started traveling around and going different places. And he was sitting on a train one day traveling uh, through the countryside. And while he was on a train, there was a young lady sitting across from him and she was reading a book and, and she was just kind of overtaken by this poetry that she was reading and she turned to him and she said to him, uh, Sir, I want to ask you, what do you think about this hymn that I'm reading? And he took the book from her and he began to read the book that he handed to her and it was his own hymn. Here is a man who is away from the Lord. He's not doing what he ought to do. He's drifted. He's just kind of on his own. And he begins to read his own words. And here is what he read. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Don't you love these words? Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. He read his own words. They began to convict and pierce his heart. And it was at that moment he realized, I'm so far away from the Lord. I, I've got to get things right. And he did. Amazing. What that illustrates to us in a lot of ways is something that we know in our heart of hearts, but we may not always know in our behavior. And that is that there is no standing still in the Christian life. You are either drawing closer to the Lord or you are moving farther away from the Lord. In fact, there is a term, it's not used very often in the Bible, but it seems to be used kind of regularly in Christianity, and that's the term backsliding. We would talk about that. We would say that, man, there's somebody, well, they're saved, but, you know, they're, they're a backslidden Christian. We mean that they have slid away from the Lord. And we see here in this text, he talks about lest they should, and he uses the word slip. That word slip there carries the idea of drifting. It's a, it's a nautical term that kind of describes a wandering ship. You, you all live by a bay and see a lot of ships and boats, and, you know, if you don't tie them up, they're going to drift away from port. And, 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 and it's a, a kind of an idea that, would, even in that poem, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, bind my heart so it doesn't drift away. You understand that no one ever intends to slip and no one ever intends to drift, and so we must take some measures. And by the way, slipping and drifting is always a, a negative thing. Nobody ever drifts into something positive. 
right? You, you can drift into some trouble. No one ever drifts into righteousness. I don't know anybody that wakes up in the morning and goes, oh, whoa, I'm spiritual. No, it doesn't work that way. You don't drift into spirituality. In fact, I could illustrate it to you this way. You don't drift into a six-pack of abs. In fact, I can testify, you drift into something else, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. You don't, you know, look, look, I could say it this way. My, my hair didn't turn gray. I didn't drift into black. No, I drifted into gray-headedness. Some of you drifted into baldness. You just, you drift into bad things. You understand what I'm saying? Well, nobody drifts into spirituality. We, we drift into backslidingness. I, I think a lot of people are like Robert Robinson. They find themselves on a train out somewhere uh, far, far away from the Lord, and they think to themselves, how did I ever get here? How did this ever happen to me? And the answer is found in our text. He says, how, how should we escape if we neglect so great salvation? That's how we drift through simple neglect. Now, again, this is the first of five major admonitions found in Hebrews. And in the middle of his explanation about angels, he, he gives an invitation. And that reminds us, just uh, teaches us lessons in the Bible about effective preaching. You know, effective preachers do more than just present the facts. Uh, in fact, the Bible makes a distinguishing uh, mark between preaching and teaching. And I think that that's one of those marks is that teaching is the impartation of information. And while preaching imparts information, that's not all it does. It demands something of its hearers. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews has done. He has presented a truth. And now, in typical fashion, he, he stops and he says, listen, you need to respond to what you have heard. Reminds me of the story. I like, I like history a lot of Abraham Lincoln, uh, I, I, I've read this story before that, you know, in the times of Abraham Lincoln's presidency, it wasn't quite like today. Uh, he, he, he would just maybe sometimes just take a walk in the streets of Washington, D.C., and one night he wanted to go to a midweek church service, and so he, with an aide, they walked from the White House to a church service, and he didn't want to kind of make a hullabaloo about him being there, and so he allowed the, the pastor allowed him a side room, and he and his aide kind of sat in the side room, and the pastor preached that night, and you can imagine if the president was in the presence of the congregation, I don't know, he just maybe gave it a little something extra, and, and uh, while they were walking home on the streets of Washington, D.C., Abraham Lincoln and his aide, his aide was just talking about the sermon, and he kept saying, man, man wasn't that a fantastic sermon? Wasn't that an amazing sermon? And he, he was kind of trying to spur on some conversation, and, and really, Abraham Lincoln didn't say anything. Finally, the aide pressed him and said, didn't you, I mean, you're not saying anything. Didn't you think that that was a great sermon? And Abraham Lincoln said, it failed to be great because the preacher did not ask us to do anything great. You see, I, I think that that's what the author is trying to do here. He presents a truth and then he demands something from them. And that's what I believe all preaching does. You say, well, this is kind of an old-fashioned church. You have an invitation. And I know there are some people, they don't come forward. And sometimes in churches, the same three or four people come forward all the time. But do you understand why we do that? I believe that we do that. I know we do that at our church, not because I judge or base the sermon that I give. I got over this a long time ago. I don't base the sermon based on how many people come forward. I mean, I don't know, every preacher in here can testify. I've gone home before with my chest out, and I told my wife, man, that was a good sermon tonight, and she went, meh. <laughs> there are other times I've come down with my head hung low, and I said, man, I blew it tonight, and she said, man, I thought that was great. 
There have been times I preached my guts out and nobody came forward. There have been times I, I preached and man, everybody came forward. That, that, that's really not the barometer. But the reason that we have an invitation, folks, is, is not so we can see what a great sermon was, but it's to give us an opportunity to respond. It's the preacher calling us to something great. Listen, this truth makes no difference if it just bounces off of your ears and is not applied to your life. And so the author does this here tonight. It's as if he pauses and asks, we've said that Jesus is better than everyone and everything. What are you going to do about it? You see, the danger here is neglecting so great salvation. doesn't use the word rejecting. This morning I tried to give a clear presentation of the gospel and uh, you know, uh, I always hope and expect that somebody will get saved. And to my knowledge, we did not have anybody raise their hand or hear the gospel and be saved. I mean, we never know what the Lord is going to do, but we didn't see any visible fruit of somebody getting saved today. And maybe there was somebody here and they were lost and they rejected the gospel. They rejected this salvation. But tonight, I want to preach to a group of people that probably testify that they have accepted Jesus Christ and His great and wonderful salvation. But the admonition here is not, please don't reject the gospel. The admonition here is, do not neglect the gospel that you have already received. How does that happen? Oh, we've all seen it, haven't we? You ever seen somebody that is newly saved and they neglect to grow? Oh, they get saved, and I really believe, I, I, I grow weary all the time of people say, well, did they really get saved? Well, first of all, that's not our job to judge. The Bible says the wheat and the tares, they grow together. It's our job just simply to distribute the seed. Now, I don't want to stand over uh, everybody and say, well, I wonder if they're really saved. But I have seen people who I think did get saved. When they trusted Christ, they called upon his name. Maybe even a tear rolled down their face. Maybe they hugged your neck and said, thanks for sharing this with me. But they never really grew. They, they never started reading their Bible. They never started coming to church. They never got consistent. They, they never went through discipleship. They never grew, and they neglected this great gift that God had given them. I've also seen on the other end of the spectrum, I've seen a lot of long-time Christians get comfortable with the salvation that God's given them. Oh, they got over it a long time ago. May God help us to never get over it. I mean, like, never get over it. I mean, I got saved, I couldn't believe it. I feel like an old man. Maybe it's because I am. 35 years ago, I got saved. And I would hope I could say tonight, I still haven't gotten over that. But I know some people, they don't measure that they've been saved by weeks or, or even years. They're measured their salvation in decades. And I'll tell you, they got over it a long time ago. And they, they just sit like a bump on a log. How do you get like that? How do you get? I mean, I've had people in our church. Man, our church has grown, and it's exciting what the Lord's done. And then I've had people where the church has grown. We can have people join the church. People get baptized. Reports of salvations, and somebody come up, and they're angry because there ain't no paper towels in the bathroom. How does that happen? You've neglected a great salvation. By the way, I'm all for paper towels being in the bathroom. I, I really am. I mean, praise the Lord for that. You ever in church shaking hands with somebody who says, sorry, I just got out of the bathroom? Dry your hands off for crying out loud. But I mean, and if there ain't no paper towels in the bathroom, that's okay. Praise the Lord anyhow. I'm just saying it's not the most important thing. And people get crotchety and grouchy and angry and frustrated, and they become bitter church pew-sitting Christians because they have neglected a wonderful salvation. They got over it. You know, more problems in life are caused by neglect than perhaps anything. Think about it. If you're a homeowner, 
If you neglect your house, it becomes dilapidated. Hey, if you're a car owner and you neglect to change the oil, and you neglect to change the brakes, and maybe you see that service engine light that came on and it's bothering you, so you take a piece of electrical tape and you put it over it, you know? Listen, you are neglecting it, and that's just only going to lead to more problems. Think about it tonight. If you neglect your health, you may end up having a heart attack. Think about it tonight. If you neglect your children, they're going to be grown and gone before you know it. And I'm entering that stage of my life. I just dropped my oldest daughter off to college a few months ago. And, and I'm telling you, I, I still remember ringing in my ears when she was just a little girl. And, and everybody's had children has had this admonition. Hey, enjoy them while you can. You're going to blink and they're going to be grown and gone. And buddy, it is a true thing. But, and, and I'm telling you, her mom and I have sat and reflected. We sat across the table and looked at each other. And we thought to ourselves, man, where did time go? What could we have done better? How could we have been better parents? Where did we fail? Uh, all of these kind of things we have evaluated. Evaluated. Why? Because it's very easy to neglect our children and they're grown and gone. How about this? You neglect your marriage. And before long, you're strangers in a home together or even worse. Do you understand what I'm saying about neglect? And we can apply this to this area of salvation. It certainly applies to our spiritual life as well. We can neglect our Bible. We can neglect our prayer life. We can neglect, neglect worship with God's people. You understand tonight, if you start missing church, you'll end up not missing church. You understand what I'm saying? That's why every pastor gets as nervous as can be. I, I usually sit on our platform, and I like to look out in our church because I know where everybody sits. And I'm not against that. I'm just against the attitude that says, you're in my seat. Uh, but I like it when people sit where they sit because you can keep track of it. And I'm telling you, every pastor that I've known that has pastored for any length of time, they look out and they see. It just takes one Sunday night service and you go, oh boy, where was so-and-so? Because you know you miss one service, it's easy to miss a second service. You miss a second service, it's easy to miss four or five services. That's why the pastor's always Sunday morning, Sunday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And they're pushing that. Why? Because, man, it's easy to neglect that thing. And then before long, you're just completely out. And the result is a drifting away. All right, so now we come to the sermon. Let me give you three signs from our text that a Christian is backsliding. Okay, they're contained in, in, in the verses we read. Three signs that a Christian is backsliding. Number one, hearing God's word but not heeding God's word is a sign of backsliding. Hearing God's word but not heeding God's word is a sign of backsliding. Look at, look at verse one. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. Now remember, the problem here is not so much intention. Nobody intends to slip away. You're here tonight on a Sunday night. Uh, it, it, you, you don't intend to get away from the Lord. Nobody in this room tonight intends for that to happen. So it's not a matter of intention. It's a matter of inattention. It's really not a matter of a lack of, of knowledge. In fact, who is he writing to? Think about it. Tonight he is writing to Hebrew or, or Jewish believers. So these Jewish believers came from the nation of Israel, and understand, the nation of Israel had all the types and the shadows to illustrate salvation in Jesus Christ. But yet, because they studied over and over and over, they heard all of these things, the truth about the, the symbolism of the tabernacle and the laws and, and the scriptures and the prophecies, and they studied these things and they parsed these things. But yet, when the Messiah was standing right in front of them, they didn't even recognize him. Why? They heard it, 
but they did not heed it. I'm going to tell you, that, 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 that should speak volumes to us. Because when you're talking about an Israelite who, who had the law of Moses, who had the symbolism, who had the words of the prophets, basically they had a candle to light their way. Well, if they had a candle to light their way and, and they kind of messed, messed this thing up, what's going to happen to us when we have the sun to light our way? He said, what do you mean? Jesus came, the Son of God. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And now we have a complete revelation of God. Don't you love? Man, I love this book. Genesis to Revelation, we got the whole thing. And yet sometimes we have the same problem. We hear it and yet don't heed it. Can I illustrate it to you? I like illustrating. I think it helps us get it. I, I mentioned, I think in Sunday school today, I talked about the, the flight attendants. You can always tell the difference between somebody that flies all the time or somebody that's a new flyer. The new flyer hangs on every word that she says. I mean, when she's talking about, and, and look, they, they must all, I don't care what airline you fly, they must all go to the same school. Because they all talk the same way, and, and they all point with two fingers. I don't know why they point with two fingers. There are exit signs here, here, and here, okay? So, so I, I'm imagining if we're at 35,000 feet and we're going down, they're going to be going this way. Everybody this way, all right? So, so they, they talk with their same, same thing, and they go over. And you can tell the people that have flown all the time. They're like me. I don't want to hear it. It gets on my nerves. I know there's a flotation device under the seat. I know that if we're in a, a, a situation that you put the life vest on, you slip it here and you cinch it tight, and don't you love this? You blow. If you, you know, I, I get it. And they always crack me up because they're like, in the event of a crash, blow in the tube. I don't think anybody's going to be smiling like that. <laughs> and, and, and I love how they tell you, here's how you buckle your seatbelt. Now, who has not figured out how to buckle a seatbelt to this point. And why do we have to wear a seatbelt if the plane crashes at 30,000 feet? Is, is, a, is a lap belt really going to help? <laughs> Furthermore, if you don't know how to buckle a seatbelt, maybe you deserve... No, I'm just... I'm just yeah, no, no. Right? And so they're going through all of this, and they're telling you about the oxygen and about the flotation devices and how to buckle your seatbelt and where the exit signs are and all of that, and you've got some people that got the card out and they're listening. You might even see them jotting down notes, you know. And then you got the other people like me. I mean, you got your noise-canceling earphones on, and I mean, you're, you're halfway in a nap, or you're reading a book, or you're just, you know, you're aggravated because you're trying to watch something on the TV, and their, their, their announcement is interrupting this, you know. You, you understand what I'm saying? That, that, that what happens is you, you've got... You, you, get, you get this glazed-over look from some people, and why does that happen? Here's why this happens on an airplane. This is why we don't heed the message. Number one, I've heard this before. You just obviously know, and I've flown a few, uh, I've flown a few times, because I think I could do this demonstration. I really do. And so we sit there, and I go, yeah, 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 I've heard this before. Doesn't that sound like church life? Yeah, yeah. I've heard this all before. I would imagine there were some people sitting here this morning when I was preaching about the gospel, and you're like, yeah, I'm already saved. Come on, I've heard this before. 
But I don't know, I kind of like that song, I love to tell the story. I love to tell the story, why? Because those that know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory, I sing a new, new song. It will be the old, old story that I've loved so long. But yet sometimes we sit there and go, eh, okay, I've heard this before. The other reason we our eyes gloss over when the flight attendant's given their, their uh, instructions is you don't think you're going to need it. So you don't pay any attention to it. I mean, I've flown dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times, and thank the Lord, I've never gone down. And I just feel like, yeah, you know, I'm not going to need these instructions. And I think that that happens too. I think a lot of people sit in church services and they either say, yeah, I already know that. Or they think, that just doesn't apply to me. That applies to somebody else. Do you, do you know what I'm saying tonight? We don't have a hearing problem. We have a heating problem. And that's a sign of backsliding. Too many Christians take the word of God for granted, and therefore they neglect it. But it's not just neglecting it in that way. It is hearing without heeding. Remember what James said in James chapter 1? He says, listen, don't just be a hearer of the word. Be a doer of the word. What's he saying? Don't just hear it. Heed it. He's like, don't be like that guy that looks in the mirror and he sees that his hair is a mess, but he doesn't do anything about it. It's, it's like the guy that shaves in the morning and he nicks himself and so he puts a piece of toilet paper on his face and then he just kind of leaves it there and he goes to the office and everybody's like, um, should I tell him? You know? We got a lot of Christians walking around. They've seen themselves in the mirror of God's word and they don't do anything about it. That's a sign of backsliding. Number two, can I give you this? Thinking, about, thinking that God's judgment is no big deal is a sign of slipping uh, look what he says in verse 2. For the word spoken by angels was steadfast in every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so, so great salvation? The argument here is very simply, the argument is that if a law given by God's messengers, his angels, if that was reliable and it brought judgment on people who disobeyed it, how much greater are the consequences of somebody who neglects the message of God's Son? In fact, remember Jesus gave a parable that kind of illustrated that truth in the Gospel accounts. Remember, he, we call it the parable of the wicked husbandman. Remember that it talks about how the owner of that vineyard sent some messengers down to tell them to get to work and get busy, and they, they beat up the, the, the servants, and they beat up one after the other, and finally he said, listen, if I send my son... Maybe, maybe they'll listen to my son, and when he comes down, they, they don't just beat him up, they kill him. And, and it's a whole parable of how God sent messenger after messenger. He sent prophet after prophet. He sent message after message to them. And finally, he sent his very own son, and they rejected him, and they crucified him. And this is what it says. The, 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 Jesus said these words, When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what do you think he will do to those husbandmen? The idea is very clear. If they did that to his son, when he comes back and he judges the earth, when, when he deals with them for rejecting his son, how do you think that that's going to be received? Interesting. What I'm telling you tonight is I think sometimes we, we kind of underestimate the magnitude of who God is. I understand your, your choir sang tonight and sang wonderfully, and I'm not nitpicking. 
But there was a line in the song, I think, said that I come to him not as a judge, but as a friend. And I'm thankful for that. That is truth. That's Bible truth. We may enter boldly into the presence of God, and as many as received him, then became the, the sons of God. And we have that kind of relationship, and he is our friend. And, and I'm, I'm so thankful for that. But we, are in, we, we, we run the risk and the danger when we have that kind of relationship of forgetting that he is God, and he still deserves to be feared. I think there are too many people in Christianity today, that are in love with His grace. And they forget that His grace is not an excuse to not do things. You understand what I'm talking about? I came across this. This was a great quote. I wish I could claim it as my own. But somebody posted this recently and it grabbed my attention. And they entitled it Reverse Legalism. If I could chase a rabbit and get on a hobby horse a little bit tonight, I get so tired of the abuse of the word legalism. Where I'm at, where there are a lot of different churches, a lot of people just, man, I mean, if you preach any kind of standard of righteousness, you're a legalist. Well, can I tell you something? That just makes me, makes me pretty mad, to be honest with you. It's not fair. And it's not right. Because we're living in a, an age of what I would call reverse legalism. This is what one man said. He said a reverse legalist can sometimes be, ironically, just as legalistic as a regular legalist. But with a twist. Instead of measuring sanctification by multiplying behavioral standards so that he can, be smugly, uh, so that he can smugly, smugly announce, I am holier than thou... The reversed legalist measures sanctification by eliminating behavioral standards so that he can announce with equal smugness, I am freer than thou. Do you understand what, what, what we are living in a generation that does that? They think that I can just do whatever I want because I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. Not being under the law means I'm not under the, the condemnation of the law. It doesn't mean I'm free to do whatever I want to do. And, and, and we see this in Christianity. It's not a new phenomenon. It's just going on today. But like Solomon said, things go round and round. There's nothing new under the sun. And what we found is, you know, we got some people today, and maybe a generation ago when I was coming up, you had a bunch of preachers that were maybe even angry and mean-spirited about it, and, and they hollered all the time about what they didn't do. We don't go to movies, and we don't wear this, and we don't listen to this music, and we don't do that. But now you got a generation that are over here, and, and, and they're just as smug and just as arrogant, and they're saying, well, we don't wear neckties, and we don't have Sunday night services, and we don't do this, and we don't do that. And it's all the same thing, friend. And I think you have forgotten that we don't do or not do things so that we can gain brownie points and merit badges with God, but we still need to remember that unto whomsoever much has been given, much is required. And I think we are in a backslidden state in our life when we think it's just no big deal. God doesn't care. He uses a couple words in this text. He uses the word transgression. Transgression means stepping over the line. That means intentionally doing something we know to be wrong. Don't look at me in my God-given eyeball and tell me you've never done something that you knew at the start when you did it, it was wrong. I got five kids and they are five sinners. And I've even told them, I mean, your kids ever done this? Because Somebody said, what's your easy going one? We ain't got one of those. And, 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 and I might tell them, hey, don't touch this. You don't touch that. And they'll go, okay. 
You got any kids like that? Our Heavenly Father's got some kids like that. Oh, I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to. He uses the word disobedience. You know what that is? That's just shutting your ears to the commands, the warnings, and the invitations of God. We could call that neglect. It's doing nothing when you know you should be doing something. It's not coming to the altar when the Holy Spirit is prompting you. It's not giving an invitation or a gospel track when you know the Holy... Every last one of us has done this before. You had a gospel track in your pocket, you had it in your car, you're pumping your gas, you look across the way, and the Holy Spirit says, hey, go over there and give that guy a track. And you go, he looks busy. He looks kind of rough. I don't think he'd want a gospel track. You know, I'm in a hurry. I'll just wait till this gets to... How many of you never stop on anything but an increment of five? Yeah, okay. See, we, we just, we know what we should do and we don't. Well, here's what the Bible says about that. They received a just recompense of reward. They got what they were, was coming to them. God is always fair. What I'm telling you tonight is listen, I want to paint an accurate picture of who Jesus is. Yes, he is our friend. Yes, he is gracious. Yes, as we sang tonight over and over again, he loves me, he loves me. Yes, he loves me, this I know. Those are wonderful truths. But I also want to remind you of something, that Jesus is also not your loving heavenly grandpa that sits in a rocking chair with a long gray beard and just doesn't really care what you do or don't do. I think some people think that Jesus is our hired cheerleader. He just looks at our life and whatever we want to do, he goes, that's great. You go, buddy. Rah, rah, you. That's, that's what we've painted with a lot of our, our new songs and our new ideas and our new books. Is that God? Yes, I know the psalmist wrote and it's true. God is for you. God is not against you. But he is also not your heavenly cheerleader. The Bible still says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And when a Christian can sin and say, meh, it's not really that big of a deal, we know we're backslidden. I was sitting in the living room of a couple one time, I was visiting them, trying to get them in church. And they said, well, preacher, what do you think about, and they listed a sin. They really, they asked me, what do you think about living together when you're not married? And don't you love that when you have a prospective church person, you know, and they ask you a wonderful question like that. And uh, I told them from the scriptures what I thought about that in a nice way. Remember the lady looked at me, and she said, well, we've been doing this for years, and God hadn't judged us yet. Oh boy, I wonder how many times I've done something like that. I've done this, I've done this, I know it's wrong. But God doesn't seem to do anything about it, so I mean, I guess it's all right. Do not frustrate the grace of God, please. Let me get the third thing. I don't want to wear you out, I want to get out of the way here. But number three, and I like this too. Here's another sign that we've been backsliding. When we allow ritual to replace relationship. That's a sign of backsliding. In verse 4, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. 
What it's saying there is God validated his message to all men with signs and wonders. He sent those to the Jews. Miracles, he sent those to the Gentiles. And the gifts of the Holy Spirit he has given to the church. But you know, what happens is man has a tendency to fall in love with gifts and signs and wonders and miracles rather than God. In fact, I'm preaching a Sunday morning series in our church through 1 Corinthians. I've entitled it, A Church Worth Saving. It had a lot of problems. We're just now finishing up chapter 14, which deals with the gift, of, the sign gift of, of tongues. And, and what had happened is the church at Corinth had gotten so impressed with the many gifts, and it was a gifted church, and it got so impressed with its gifts that it neglected its God. Paul uh, rebukes them for this. And the point of these things in this text, these signs, wonders, miracles, and gifts, the point of these things was to validate the gospel message so that, like we preached about this morning, man would have a relationship with God. But yet they began to fall in love with ritual instead of that relationship. You know, ritual is when we go through the motions without connecting to God. Now don't sit there and look at me and tell me whether you're a preacher, a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, or just a, what we call a regular church member, that you haven't at some point in your Christian life gone through the motions. You stand and you sing the song. And you know the song. You don't even need to crack the hymnal. You know the words. And you sing it, but you don't even think about what you're singing. You certainly aren't even singing to God. You hear the preaching because our order of service is always the same. The choir sings here. We sing two songs here. They come and they pray for the offering here. Then we preach here and then we get out right at noon because, you know, well, for here you didn't get out at noon. But at our church, people just start glazing over and shutting down because their stomachs take over their brains and they can't hear anymore when it turns. And we've got to beat those pesky Presbyterians to the buffet, you know, and, and, and you know, just, you know, kind of things like that. And we go through the rituals. We just kind of do what we do. Heard a story. A little girl one day was watching her mom cook in the kitchen. Her mom was preparing a ham and she cut the ends off of both of that ham, cut the, both ends off of that ham and put it in the pan and put it in the oven. And she said, Mommy, why do you always cut the ends of the ham off when you put it in the pan? Mom looked at her little girl. She said, I don't know. I guess it's so that the ham can absorb the juices and the spices. She says, but you know, I learned to cook from your grandma, so she, you should really go and ask grandma. So the little girl, next time she saw her grandma, she said, Grandma, I want to ask you, why do you and Mommy both cut the ends off the ham when you put it in the pan? And Grandma said, I don't know, I guess it's to absorb the juices and the spices when you, when you cook it. And she said, you really ought to go ask your great-grandma because that's who taught me how to cook. So she went to her great-grandma, and she said, Great-grandma, why do you cut the ends off the ham? Why does grandma cut the ends off the ham? Why does mom cut the ends of the ham off before she cooks it? And great-grandma began to laugh, and she said, Why are you laughing at me? Great-grandma said to her, she said, Well, I always did that because my pan was too small. <laughs> I know it's a quaint, goofy little story. But it just shows you how sometimes we have a lot of rituals. And I'm not saying traditions are bad. I'm not. Traditions are fine. In fact, in Thessalonians, we're told not to forsake biblical traditions. And he uses the word tradition. So don't think I'm on it. I think we got some young people that just want to thumb their nose at anything that is traditional. That's not what I'm saying here tonight. What I'm saying to you tonight is when you start just going through the motions of your Christianity... 
you are in a backslidden state. When you just go to church because that's what you do. Now listen carefully to me. Listen carefully. I mean this when I say it. I'd rather you do the right thing for the wrong reason than not do the right thing at all. So if you're here tonight just because that's what you do on Sunday night, I'll take that. But I am saying you're backslidden when you're just doing what you're supposed to do because that's what you do. You just read your Bible because you want to check off a box. Again, I'd rather you get up in the morning and read your Bible to check off a box than not read it at all. But I'd much rather you also read your Bible because you really want to know something about Jesus Christ. You just pray because that's what Christians do. One time I was at a prayer meeting with my little boy. He's 11 now, but I think at the time he was probably about six years old. We're at this men's prayer meeting, and I, I wanted him to learn how to pray with men and be around men who prayed. And so we were praying together. And, and I remember he, he began to pray, and, and, and uh, you know, I was praying, and I, I said, all right, buddy, you go ahead and pray. And I, I knew he's only six, seven years old, and I figured he'd only pray for 30 seconds or something. But I remember my little guy, he bowed his head, and, and it was his turn to play. And we were in a circle with a few men there, and he bowed his head, and he said, dear Jesus, I just want to thank you for this food. When he said that, we weren't eating. We were at a prayer meeting. I mean, he immediately, eyes big as saucers, he sat up and he looked at me and he said, I'm sorry, Dad. I said, that's all right, buddy, we've all done that. Haven't we? We started, sometimes we say the most foolish things in the name of prayer. Aren't even biblical, don't even make any sense. Why? We're just going through a ritual. I hope I'm making sense and tracking with you tonight. Somebody said this. Christianity is an intimate, growing relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not just a set of doctrines to believe, or habits to practice, or sins to avoid. I ask you tonight, and I hope I haven't worn you out, I'm done preaching, but has your worship become an empty routine? I hope tonight you came in this auditorium saying, man, I want to... I want to magnify the Lord in song. I want to give because I love Him. I, I want to pray because I long to talk to Him. I, I, I want to hear His word because I, I want His spirit to work in my heart. I want Him to change me. I want to be like Him. I, I don't want this just to be another church service. Help me out tonight, church. How many of you have ever been in a church service before where God, I mean, He, he, he spoke to I mean, He did. He spoke to your heart. How many of you ever been in a service where He didn't? Yeah. Do you know why I want to come tomorrow? Tomorrow might just be the service he speaks to me again. I don't want to just go through the rituals. Have your prayers been reduced to nothing but repetitious reciting? Has your Bible reading lost its motivation? These are all symptoms of a heart that has moved far away from the Lord. So I want to ask you some questions tonight. Thanks for listening so well. My first question is this. Have you neglected the great gift of salvation? I don't know when you got saved. I got saved in June of 1984. And I can tell you, there have been times in my journey of faith that I have neglected the greatest treasure God has ever given me. I have. Have you? Have you heard it, but you're not heeding it? You have no intention of doing anything with anything you've heard all day. That's a backslidden state. Are you downplaying the judgment of God? As if it's no big deal. I mean, 
me and the big guy, we're buddies. Don't ever talk like that. Fall on your face like the disciples did. What matter of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Have you become ritualistic? Or are you actively cultivating a relationship with God? I hope that you're growing closer to him and not slip sliding away. Heavenly Father, thank you for letting me preach a little bit tonight. Thank you for convicting my own sinful heart. God, you know that I'm like Mr. Robinson, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I, I really do love. With your heads bowed tonight and your eyes closed, how many would say, preacher, that spoke to my heart. I've either slipped or I fear slipping away. And I long tonight to be close to the Lord. How many would say that's my desire? God bless your hands all over the room and I thank you. My hand is with you. I'm prone to slip. And it scares me. And I do not want to... How many say, I'm not being presumptuous, I'm not being arrogant, but tonight I really do love Jesus tonight. How many would testify that? Oh, yes. And let's not wander from Him. I hope the Lord is dealing with your heart as He is with mine. Would you stand to your feet, please, and as the piano begins to play, there's some at the altar now.